0: I'm Benjamin Wittes, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, September 5th, 2022. On this week's crossover episode, we bring you an episode of Live from Ukraine, in which Oleksandra Povorovnik talks about language, politics, and wartime culture. Povorovnik is a Kiev based journalist, film critic, and translator who joined me live on Twitter Spaces to discuss the changing politics of language in Ukraine, as well as the country's defiant sense of humor and wartime culture. It's the Lawfare Podcast, September 5th, live from Ukraine. This is Live from Ukraine a conversation with ukrainian voices taped live on twitter spaces to join future audiences follow me at benjamin wittis i want to start as i do with all of the your uh, your twitter bio has uh, an interesting account of yourself which is uh, kind of whimsical i used to be a film critic at vertico.com. UA and a translator of food-related stuff, then Russia invaded my homeland. Uh, so give us the the longer extended dance version of that. Um, what, like Who were you before the full-scale invasion?
2: Um, all right. Uh, well, I studied sociology uh, for my bachelor's degree. Then um, I got a master's degree in journalism, and I decided I wanted to do that. Um, But then, you know, I wrote on a lot of topics, um, you know, especially topics that have to do with, you know, the society in general or arts and stuff. Um, But then gradually I sort of um, realized that I love movies. um, I've always loved movies and that, you know. Um, not a lot of people in Ukraine write and talk about movies in Ukrainian. You know, um, I think a lot of people who you know have found their sort of niches um, in the Ukrainian either creative world or media world. Um, all of them, at a certain point in their lives, they sort of realize that you know um, there's not much you know food related or movie related or you know whatever related content in Ukrainian made. For Ukrainians by Ukrainians, so I sort of you know started doing that. Um, I'm still you know an editor at I think uh, the largest um, web outlet devoted to writing about movies and TV series and you know just visual arts in general um, in Ukraine, which writes in Ukrainian. Um, although obviously you know uh, we haven't been as active as we were before the war because you know uh, even just seeing a movie. In Ukraine right now is very stressful and you know the cinemas have reopened a little but um, it's still it's still not you know um, as big of a part of our life as it used to be before the invasion and you know um, I think as a lot of my peers um, we were you know at a point in our lives when you know our careers were starting you know to really take off and we were thinking well you know 2022 is definitely gonna be the year for us um you know because covid is almost over and you know this is going to be a good year for us professionally and you know personally and then the invasion started and you know it's it seems kind of weird to you know write about movies or to use twitter to you know to complain about your personal life or whatever when you know you're seeing the things that ukrainians are seeing right now so Um, I started writing about my own experiences, you know, a little bit because um, I felt like I had to vent. I saw a lot of, you know, really cynical disinformation online, a lot of um, English-speaking people sort of making fun of the war. And it just, you know, it, it hurt me. So I started, you know, being more active on social media and writing about that stuff. And I don't know, it's been both a curse and a blessing because, um, you know, I have been able to get my point across to a lot of, you know, wonderful non-Ukrainians and, you know, and maybe even, you know, support Ukrainians um, in the way that they see people writing about the things that, you know, they're discussing in their kitchens but they see, um, you know, people like me writing about the same things in English and sort of amplifying that to a more general audience. But also, you know, it is stressful. Um, so I think one day I'm definitely going to write some kind of essay about how uh, social media has impacted all of us Ukrainians, and it's definitely going to be a very bleak essay. But um, someone has to do it, you know, sooner or later. But yeah, that that's the uh, long, longer version, I guess. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, when you're ready to write that essay, uh, I would love to have Lawfare publish it. Um, So I want to talk to you about this week. Um, You uh, 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 tweeted just before we went live that you were going to crawl into your basement as soon as we were done and then that you don't have a basement. Um, uh, The... uh, On the one hand, Kiev is relatively normal right now. On the other hand, everybody seems to be expecting major Russian strikes in connection with uh, Ukrainian Independence Day. Uh, How do things feel right now?
2: Um, Well, you know, um, I have to start by saying that uh, I'm one of the definitely luckier Ukrainians. Um, I think that, um, you know, so far me and my family have been as lucky as you can be, really, um, while being Ukrainian and in Ukraine. Um, I'm currently in Hostomol, which is, you know, um, sadly, a place which is, you know, um, famous the world over, but, you know, sadly, not for the things that I'd ever wanted to be famous for. And, you know, they were very lucky to get out in time um, and... You know, my husband and uh, our kid and I, we also managed to get out of Kiev um, quite early. So uh, we've been lucky um, and a lot of my friends have been lucky. So I think we're, you know, we obviously, you know, Ukraine has been a very dangerous place to be in for the last six months. And you can't really say that a certain city is, you know, is safe. Um, because you know they're all relatively dangerous, and I think um a lot of you know my peers and a lot of people who you know have returned back to Kiev from you know wherever they were um, during the past couple of months uh, I think a lot of them feel you know both sort of you know on edge obviously and and scared, but also sort of you know defined in this kind of almost um slightly hysterical way um because you know when you've seen um so many you know shopping malls or, or just residential buildings being randomly as it seems destroyed and then you know everyone starts saying that you know russia is going to you know is planning something big for the Independence Day, um, you know, some of us, um, me included, uh, sort of, you know, laugh in a slightly deranged way and say, well, you know, bring it on. It's not like they were holding back before. So obviously we're both, you know, a little on edge um, or very on edge, but also sort of um, this has become the new normal. So um, I think nobody's, you know, the weird thing is that, you know, all the people I've spoken to, even the ones who can leave kiev and you know go out west or you know to the quieter cities i don't think anyone's really planning that everyone's like okay we'll we'll probably you know stay at home today probably not go out shopping and you know stay further away from you know the residential quarter but you know if 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 our you know destiny is to die from a russian missile then okay i guess so be it because you can't live in fear forever and at a certain point the sort of you know it does become the new normal and you sort of um develop a bleakly humoristic approach towards everything that's happening so um yeah i think we're definitely a little damaged but uh that's our coping mechanism and i think um this is the reason why you know right now it's a lot of people in kyiv are remaining relatively calm and collected yeah so i'm i'm interested in
0: the uh the sort of set of feelings around uh this year's independence day on the one hand it's it's obviously a, a point of uh, pride and defiance uh, it's also the 6 month anniversary of the beginning of the war uh, or the beginning of the full scale war um uh is it uh, uh, is the coincidence of those two events uh create a sort of desire to be particularly defiant on on independence day this year or is it uh, or, or is the the fact that there is, uh, you know, expected rocketing um, and missile strikes just, you know, going to tend to keep people at home?
2: Um, that's a great question. Uh, you know, I think a couple of years ago, my husband and I were talking about how, you know, how obviously, you know, we have holidays such as the Independence Day, but, you know, nobody really um, celebrates them in the way, I guess, you know, um some Americans at least uh, celebrate you know the 4th of July so you don't really have you know people um you know holding huge barbecues or whatever um and there's not you know a lot of Yeah we take the
0: 4th of July pretty seriously.
2: Yeah yeah. <laughs> so at least you know there's no you know independence day of Ukraine related merch on sale um and you know a couple of years back my husband and I were talking about it and we said well you know I wish people would take it, you know, more seriously and, you know, go all out. And, you know, uh, well, I think this year we kind of got what we wished for, um, albeit in an absolutely horrific way. Because, um, you know, Independence Day and National Flag Day was something which was, you know, for me at least, it was something mostly which, you know, we celebrated maybe at school, maybe with, you know, some sort of like, 15 minute assembly or whatever, or kids might have been encouraged to wear blue and, you know, and yellow um, to school. But this year, I am I have noticed that a lot of people are taking this a lot more seriously. And obviously, you know, for safety reasons, um, I think not many people will be, you know, celebrating in um, with large public gatherings or whatever. But I think at home, Everybody I know is, you know, going to be defiantly, you know, doing something a tiny bit special. And, you know, um, obviously, these sort of ways of celebrating, they, um, they're very different, you know, some people are just Planning on wearing their sort of national uh, garb, their vishavankas. Uh, Some are, you know, inviting friends over, especially if um, if they, you know, lucky enough to be in the suburbs or somewhere where you can feel a little more safe. So people are, you know, they are gathering. They are planning to do something. Just because, um, you know, at the beginning of the war, there was a lot of talk about how people felt sort of guilty for, you know, going out to get coffee. if they were in relatively, you know, safer um, areas of the country. And a lot of people, you know, felt very guilty for doing these sort of normal um, everyday things because they said, well, you know, how can I be sitting around, you know, enjoying a cup of coffee um, while this horrific thing is is still happening? And I think um, a lot of us have managed to sort of, you know, deal with this the sort of, uh, you know, irrational um, guilt and have instead turned it into this sort of defiance that, you know, Russians definitely don't want us to be happy and, you know, celebrating and they want us to, you know, cover in fear. And, you know, this this sort of um, the, the freedom to celebrate our independence day, the freedom to, you know, Buy a cup of coffee. The freedom to, you know, go get your nails done is also, you know, what our soldiers on the front lines—they are also, you know, fighting so that the civilians can sort of, you know, go on with their lives and, you know, not feel afraid to go out, you know, um, shopping as trivial as it sounds. But, you know, unless we do all of those things and unless we celebrate our Independence Day, especially since we have, um, we've been reminded of how important this is. um, Unless we do all that, I think there is a very real sort of danger of us, you know, a lot of us going completely insane um, from stress. So I think it's a little, um, it's interesting how I think for a lot of non-Ukrainians who haven't lived under these circumstances, I think a lot of them get a little confused at how people can, you know, celebrate anything um, while there's a war going on or how can people, you know, be brave enough to go to shopping malls or, you know, go to the cinema. Uh, But the truth is that we, you know, we really don't have a choice. Uh, We have to find this sort of uh, war-life balance uh, just, you know, to preserve our sanities and, you know, also to... I guess, preserve the economy, because that's also obviously um, something that we have to think about. So, yeah.
0: Yeah. So a related point, one thing that I think a lot of Westerners uh, uh, have a lot of trouble getting their hands around is the apparently joyful Ukrainian sense of humor in the middle of this stuff and you know you see it in in the mischievous memes in the the social media presence is is uh constantly uh sort of fun even in these horrid situations and of course it's it's tempered by you know the fact that there are war crimes going on and cities being destroyed and people being murdered of course but there's it's it's much more uh uh wry and humorful than one would expect it to be um and i've I've spoken to members of my family who are uh just bewildered by this you know um how can how can they be so uh so humorous when their country is being destroyed. And I'm I'm wondering if it's a if it's a similar effect to what you're describing now with buying a cup of coffee simply or you know getting your nails done, just not being willing to let uh, the Russians take that
2: away uh you know it's not the first time that someone namely Russia to be honest, it's usually Russia uh has been trying to you know um wipe us you know from existence and ukrainians historically are not you know the luckiest nation I'd say. Um we, we've suffered you know a lot even you know um our gen my generation although you know we are we have been a lot luckier than um you know up until this year, uh, we have been uh, a little luckier than, you know, our grandparents, for example. Uh, but you know, even we had um, the Revolution of Dignity, and we had, you know, um, a, you know, generally just an awful dictator, a tyrannical president who, you know, slaughtered um, over a hundred people um, in the middle of our capital. And, you know, that, you know, obviously for a lot of people that was an extremely traumatic event and an extremely traumatic experience. And yet, you know, if, you know, um, Ukrainians um, gather over coffee and start talking about, you know, Yanukovych, the president, the ex-president, who did all those things, I think the first thing they'll, you know, they'll mention is, you know, all the funny memes um, about him. Because, you know, despite the fact that this is a guy who you know, who ordered so many people, you know, just civilians, peaceful protesters to be slaughtered by snipers. Um, The first thing that Ukrainians remember about him, although, you know, that wasn't long ago. The first thing that Ukrainians remember about him is, you know, these uh, funny videos um, of a pine tree um, falling on top of him, you know. So I think that, you know, over our history, as well, our history, We've had a lot of very traumatic experiences, and I think that humor is definitely some sort of coping mechanism here because otherwise I genuinely don't know how how you know how we'd manage to live through all of that because you know the the um attempted genocide the you know the famines the um soviet occupation things like that um you know, if you look at cultural artifacts from even the most bleak, you know, sort of times in our history, you know, there were also jokes being written there and, you know, humorous songs and things like that. And even, you know, Taras Shevchenko, who's, you know, probably our most iconic poet and man with, you know, a very difficult life because he was born into serfdom, he was essentially a slave. Um, he, you know, he had a very difficult upbringing. Um, he was brought out of slavery. He was, you know, sent, um, he was imprisoned. He was forbidden from writing poetry in Ukrainian. And yet, this guy who, you know, was definitely, um, had a very difficult life. He was also known for being, you know, sort of a prankster and, you know, for, um, drawing, erotic portraits and you know stuff like that so i think that you know although as someone who's you know who studied sociology in university I, I i've definitely been taught not to talk about you know the mentality of a nation or whatever because that's you know um that's bs but you know in this case i do i have started you know thinking that maybe you know these things are in our blood because um, it's, it's difficult to explain to an outsider, um, you know, how, how Ukrainians, you know, react to an invasion of their homeland by, you know, making, uh, frankly, adorable memes about one of the soldiers who invaded, you know, their country. And, you know, instead of hating um, him or, you know, um, saying that he should be dismembered or whatever, uh, Ukrainians on TikTok are, you know, making makeup tutorials to look like him or, you know, um, making cutesy, cutesy videos of, you know, of how they wish he would come to Ukraine as a tourist. And, you know, they're photoshopping him into, you know, like historical landmarks and, you know, and the best hotels of Odessa. So that's, I think, you know, a little, uh, some of it borders on the sort of, you know, hysterical um, humor um, of someone going through a, you know, slight um, sort of nervous breakdown. But it's also one of the, You know, only coping mechanisms uh, that are affordable to us right now. Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com newsadfree news ad free. That's amazon.com newsadfree news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.
0: This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If I could offer you an extra hour a day, in your life what would you do with it would you go for a run would you sleep in would you read would you go hang out with a friend a lot of us spend time wishing we had more time you actually can create more time for yourself it's by figuring out what's important to you making that a priority and that is where therapy can help you. It can help you find out what matters to you so you can do more of it and less of the things that you don't care about but you actually waste a lot of time on. Therapy is a great way to prioritize what's important to you, to focus on what matters and dismiss the trivial. It's a great way to learn how to set boundaries and how to develop coping skills It can help you be the best version of yourself, and it isn't just for those who've experienced major traumas. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why not try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. You can make it work with your schedule. All you do is you fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com lawfare today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash lawfare. Lawfare Twenty. So, I want to ask about the politics of language, which uh, 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 was a feature of the uh, Twitter thread with which we began, but is also a feature of a number of other uh, uh, threads you've written. I'm, I, I, I am. There is a, a pervasive misunderstanding in the West about what language means in in Ukraine. And I was definitely party to this misunderstanding myself uh, and really had to unlearn it uh, over a protracted period of time. But we have a kind of way of understanding language as a kind of proxy for ethnicity, despite the fact that you know, in the United States, we speak English and we don't think of ourselves as uh, therefore connected in some deep political sense to, you know, the rest of the English-speaking world uh, as a consequence. But um, we do have this sense when, you know, when Russia uh, propagates this idea that you know, Russian-speaking people in Eastern European countries, or for that matter, in Central Asian countries, are a kind of repressed minority. We do have this uh, instinctive internalization of the idea that there's something that binds Russian-speaking peoples together, uh, and that we should understand Ukraine as divided between Ukrainian-speaking people and Russian-speaking peoples who are somehow represented uh, by the Russian state. That has kind of broken down since February 24th. But your thread um, particularly interested me because it sort of suggested that people are, uh, you know, really making a political decision that they that they really want the lingua franca of Ukraine to be Ukrainian. Um, I'm just curious for your thoughts about what it means, uh, w- w- what the signifier is now in Ukraine in terms of what language people speak.
2: Uh, yeah, uh, you know, to be honest, um I thought, you know, as Ukrainian, that, you know, all of these sort of um, things and issues with the language, that they'd be, you know, clear as day to me. But I sort of noticed that while I was writing some of my language-related quads on Twitter, I, you know, even I had to sort of rethink some of the things that, you know, I'd gotten used to saying, um because I realized that I hadn't really, you know, processed um, a lot of the reality that surrounds me, and I hadn't really, you know, put it into words before. Uh, for example, you know, whenever um, whenever I start, you know, talking about Russian-speaking Ukrainians and ukrainian speaking Ukrainians, I, you know, I recently thought, hey, um, that doesn't really exist because... Um, Whenever we talk about Ukrainian or Russian-speaking Ukrainians, we also have to consider the fact that they're, you know, mostly Russian-speaking Ukrainians or mostly Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians. Because, you know, for example, um, my parents—they both speak mostly Ukrainian. Um, you know, we spoke Ukrainian in our family, but you know, they both have friends that they are used to talking to in Russian just because you know that's that's the way they're accustomed to you know to dealing with them. Um I have I am a mostly Ukrainian speaking person, but I also have friends who I've you know I've always spoken to in Russian and, you know, and using Ukrainian with them, it, it still feels, you know, a little odd. And you know, at the same time, um the people who, you know, who a lot of us would, you know, sort of Described as Russian-speaking, they know Ukrainian um, because in Ukraine it's you know it's it's not like um, the people that are usually described as the Russian-speaking minority, whatever that, whatever that means. It's not like they don't know Ukrainian. That's that's myth because pretty much everybody in Ukraine is bilingual um, because you know our Classes in school are in Ukrainian. Um, our, you know, the the curriculum um, is in Ukrainian. You To enter university, you have to, you know, you have to pass uh, several exams which are in Ukrainian. You know, the TV is in, you know, everything that surrounds us is pretty much, a lot of it is about, you know, 70% is in Ukrainian um so even the people who prefer to speak russian and you know and read in russian or write in russian um they know ukrainian and the same goes for you know mostly ukrainian speaking people who might not want to speak russian for you know mostly political reasons but a lot of them you no know, i think the overwhelming majority of them um they might not you know very comfortable speaking Russian because they might have you know um, have accents or if they haven't spoken Russian in a long while then you know it might sound a little off but the fact of the matter is that you know all of our grandparents and parents the majority of the books the you know the literature of all kinds that they have in um, in their homes the majority of it is in Russian because in the Soviet Union you know, most of the books that were printed were printed in russian so even if you come from a you know a very sort of um, ukrainian proudly ukrainian speaking uh, family you still probably know russian because you know there's just so much content in russian that you know even if you didn't learn it at school and also people did um then you know you'll still you know You've come across all of this content in Russian, and even if you are not comfortable speaking it, um, you probably know Russian grammar pretty well. So it's not like you know the Russian-speaking Ukrainians or Ukrainian-speaking Ukrainians or whatever. It's not like you know there are people in Ukraine who are unable to buy a loaf of bread in a supermarket because you know the the um, the uh, sales assistant refuses to you know talk to them in Russian or whatever and they don't know Ukrainian so they can't get you know food or, or access to you know whatever uh, services. Um, Russian propaganda sort of does portray it that way sometimes but that's definitely not what's happening. Um, the reality is that you know a lot of families speak both Ukrainian and Russian and you'll have situations when you know one partner in a relationship prefers to speak Russian the other might prefer to speak Ukrainian and you know that that's exactly what they do they you know they hold conversations in two languages um, for example I have a friend who used to speak mostly Russian um, before the full-scale invasion uh, her parents uh, both speak mainly uh, Russian of course she knows Ukrainian because she learned it at school and you know she 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 usually used to switch to Ukrainian um when you know the situation demanded it but after the full scale invasion she said that you know she doesn't feel comfortable using Russian anymore so she would you know switch full time to Ukrainian and she only uses Ukrainian now her husband meanwhile um who is you know just as patriotic as her um and you know just as appalled as uh, her you know by all of these monstrosities happening He still feels comfortable using Russian, and he continues using Russian. And, you know, they're a happy, happy couple um, using two languages at home, you know. And, you know, they have an infant daughter, and he uses Russian when talking to her, and, you know, his wife talks to her in Ukrainian. So I know that, you know, for people who aren't sort of used to living in the sort of bilingual society, it does sound insane. It, you know, also sounds a little insane uh, when I talk about it, um, because you know I'm just now processing uh, the, you know, very odd peculiarities of uh, Ukrainian society. But the truth of the matter is that you know most Ukrainians are, I think, the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians are, to at least some extent, bilingual. They might not be, you know, as comfortable using one language as they are using the other but you know they definitely understand both but the the the, the
0: uh, sorry to break in but the, the what i thought was so interesting about your uh the hairdresser thread was this idea that the default language is changing and that there was a certain assumption in certain places before that you walk into a shop and maybe the default language in that shop is Russian. And now there's a sort of civic decision being made by a lot of people that the default language should be Ukrainian. Do you, do you perceive that as, uh, I, I sort of took as the, the importance of the thread that you kind of perceived that default as shifting?
2: Definitely, um, you know, uh, as a kid who came from uh, a predominantly Ukrainian-speaking family, um, uh, I, you know, I have uh, grandparents who speak Russian, but still, you know, as a kid, my parents used Ukrainian with me, um, and then I spent some time um, uh, in the UK. And when I came back and started Ukrainian school, I knew Ukrainian and English. Uh, I understood Russian, but I couldn't really you know, I didn't sound um, natural uh, using Russian, I I did sound a little weird, and I got, you know, teased a lot, not, you know, for speaking in an accent, um, but, you know, for being mostly Ukrainian speaking, which, which is, you know, it's very weird, because I went to a very sort of um prestigious um school in in Kiev which is you know it's considered to be a great school it's named after one of the most prominent um Ukrainian poets um and but you know still uh kids would mostly speak Russian and the kids who you know who spoke Ukrainian at home they would be sort of not teased for it directly but they would still sort of feel this peer pressure to you know, whenever their parents would um would would call them on the phone, these kids, myself included, would try to give, you know, very short answers, usually just saying stuff like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and you know, stuff that wouldn't sort of give away the fact that our parents uh spoke Ukrainian and that we were actually Ukrainian speaking people at home. And and just to be clear, is that
0: because they're is something of a, or historically, is something of a class differential in which the sort of language of education was uh, uh, both in late Tsarist times and in, under the Soviets was uh, was Russian, or is there some other reason for that?
2: Um, it's definitely that. Uh, it, it, it does have a lot to do with, you know, these um, stereotypes that... Mostly, which you know, sort of uh, obviously, you know, if in the Tsarist times, if you wanted to make a career, if you wanted to, you know, to to write, to, you know, um, become successful in life, you had to learn Russian and you had to use Russian. And in the um, Soviet times, um, you know, since uh, the sort of Soviet society uh, considered factory workers and mechanics and, and, you know, these sort of uh, technical professions as more important to the society than, you know, the farmers um, who were sort of, you know, seen as these rural um, sort of slightly uh, silly bumpkins who, you know, were in need of being, you know, cultured and taught the, you know, the proper uh, sort of urbanized way of life. Um, there was also, you know, this stereotype that, you know, the people in large cities, they would speak Russian, and the people who spoke Ukrainian, they, you know, they were obviously from, you know, sort of rural areas, and they weren't as smart. And even after the collapse of the Soviet Union, um, if you if you see, you know, if you watch any sort of uh, Russian TV show, and you know, since Russia is objectively a richer country than Ukraine, they created a lot more um, sort of entertaining content um, than Ukraine did, especially in the early 2000s. So essentially, they flooded our market with their TV shows and films. And in all of these, you know, film shows and TV shows, um, there would probably be, you know, this... Um, very sophisticated, classy Russian-speaking character and probably some kind of, you know, um, vaguely Ukrainian or vaguely Georgian or uh, vaguely, I don't know, Kazakh-sounding sort of bumbling, uh, silly sidekick. Um, I don't know if um, you know this, but in the early 2000s, uh, Russia actually made, um, a Russian channel made sort of a reboot or remake uh, of The Nanny, and in this version, um, uh, The Nanny wasn't from Queens, she was from um, Mariupol, and she was, you know, pretty much, you know, The Nanny. She was very loud and slightly obnoxious, but, you know, this um, sort of, this way of, you know, portraying her, it sort of used a lot more of these stereotypes um, about Ukrainians, and
0: so, it, so, so, in other words,
2: the,
0: the 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 Russian sort of pop culture stereotype of Ukrainians, and therefore, the Ukrainian language is—I I, mean—to use an American analogy—is kind of a. Uh, like the way a lot of Northerners will uh, will treat a kind of rube as having a Southern or or mountain accent is that uh, there's a sort of there's a sort of a regional uh, a, 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 a regional uh, uh, bigotry or or uh, uh, that is mapped onto people being uncultured un. Unsophisticated, uh, etc.
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, I think in the Soviet times, um, the you know being Russian was seen as the default. Uh, you know, Russians were you know the normal Soviet people. Um, Ukrainians or Georgians or people from you know other ethnicities, they were you know in the best case they were sort of exoticized as seen as the you know the the sort of a uh, spicy uh version of the Soviet person and um you know so they were either a little you know, I think especially when it comes to Ukrainian women they were frankly fetishized and still are sadly um uh but you know in order to be taken seriously you did had to you did have to learn russian um, and you know speak russian very well with uh, preferably a sort of moscowish sounding accent because otherwise you would be seen as the you know the sort of the bumbling you know native um in the uh, quirky sort of um national costume and these stereotypes they stuck and you know they're still they're definitely still here um i think you know um A couple of months ago, I came across uh, the probably most um, sort of appalling thing I've ever read in my life. Um, As, you know, a lot of Ukrainians joke, uh, knowing Russian is both a curse and a blessing because you know a lot more than, you know, the typical Westerner does about Russians. And, and, you know, at the same time, you you know more than the typical Westerner does about Russians, which is... Not great, yeah. And so this 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 guy—it was a blog post of a, a guy who, you know, was fantasizing about how, you know, after the war would be over and Russia would, you know, obviously win, uh, he'd, you know, get um, as you know as a spoil of the war, he would get a Ukrainian uh, wife, and she'd be, you know, according to him, she'd be, you know, submissive and stupid, and she'd talk in a funny accent, uh, and you know, I think this is just you know it showcases how deep these stereotypes run and how you know how um how active they are in russian society because you know even if you take um a lot of russian fantasy books written by you know by modern authors uh, and these fantasy books are set in you know um lord of the rings inspired lands or whatever and a lot of them uh, still have you know sort of exotic farmers uh, you know daughter characters who speak in obviously ukrainian accents and are treated as you know the comic relief so it's not something that you know was just present in the soviet society it's something that you know it's still there and uh i think as one of the other stereotypes that you know that soviet society had and this stereotype is still very present um in russian and ukrainian society even now is that you know the idea of coming from a small village or you know being a farmer or whatever it meant that you were definitely a sort of a second class citizen and since right. you know ukraine is you know famous for being a, a huge agricultural um country and you know the red basket of Europe or whatever, um, this sort of, you know, meant that, you know, Ukrainians were treated as uh, second grade citizens because, you know, they were just, you know, silly farmers and, you know, and I think subconsciously a lot of people, even from my generation, um, they still sort of internalized and repeated these stereotypes um, because, you know, whenever we'd, uh, whenever we we had, you know, um, Ukrainian literature classes, certain classmates of mine would you know complain about how you know all ukrainian writers were born in villages and you know were just stupid villages and who would want to read them you know even though you know like if we dig back a couple of generations back i can probably guarantee you that you know that the majority of my classmates as you are you know we had relatives who were born in villages because you know that's that's the way ukraine is Um, so, and, you know, there's absolutely nothing bad about that, but, you know, we still, we saw it as something bad, as something to be ashamed of. And so, yeah, as a Ukrainian, as predominantly Ukrainian speaking child, I, you know, I was ashamed uh, to be using Ukrainian and, you know, weird because even like five years ago, I, you know, a guy, uh, started hitting on me, um, in, you know, in the subway in Kiev. And he spoke Russian, I replied in Ukrainian. And, you know, since I, you know, I didn't want to give him my number or whatever, he started very aggressively sort of um, insinuating that I had obviously come from some kind of, you know, small village in Western Ukraine. And now I thought that I was, you know, too good for him. And, you know, so like even in Kiev, in the capital of Ukraine, if you do
0: right, you you don't have to scratch deep before the 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 rural prejudice that is associated with Ukrainianism uh comes to the surface pretty quickly so 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 but it, i i want to go to audience questions and uh for uh members of the audience this is a good time if you have a question to request to speak but before we do i i just want to ask you about one contradiction in this uh, 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 Russian attitude. There are many, but you know, at the same time as uh, they think of Ukrainians as the periphery, as the rural rubes as the um, as the uh, the sort of you know the foghorn Leghorn of 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 uh, of, of Russian rule, Kiev is, of course. The mythical, mythological seat of the original Russian state in that in, in their uh, uh, version, and so there's some there's some sense in which they're also looking at Ukraine as the sort of center of authenticity of of Russian nationalism in some weird sense. Yeah.
2: Honestly, um, you know, there are certain things uh, about. The Russian ideology uh, or whatever, which, you know, even to Ukrainians, you know, and we've had a lot of shared history, um, they are very difficult to understand. And, you know, I think the best way to describe this sort of uh, Russian mentality is um, uh, a Russian quote, which says that uh, and means that, you know, you can't understand Russia with, uh, with your brain. You have to, you know, love it. Um, despite, you know, how contradictory it is. Um, well, I don't know about loving it, but yeah, uh, there are certain contradictions here. Um, I was, for one, I was certain that, you know, before the invasion, that even if they did invade, they would definitely, they wouldn't bomb Kiev because, you know, they call it the mother of all Russian cities. Uh, so, you know, how would, why would they bomb it? You know, they see it as, you know, part of their own history, their own heritage. And yet, you know, a few weeks back, when you know it was the day of the um, baptism of the Kiev Rus, they shot, you know, a lot of missiles at Kiev, you know, on that very morning. You know, despite the fact that they celebrate this day as you know the baptism of their own country, as the baptism of Russia, and they agree that it, you know, it happened in Kiev. And yet, for some reason, they still call us, you know, the little brothers. So it's very contradictory. It's very weird. Um, and I genuinely don't know how they wrap their heads around it because, you know, for me, it's, you know, it's it's some sort of catch-22 situation.
0: Yep. All right. We have a a, cup, a pair of questions uh, from Eve Gaumont. Who uh, is, uh, I think it's important from the uh, perspective of this uh, first question, is uh, from Quebec. uh, um, And she asks uh, Russian speaking Ukrainians have told me that they are forbidden to speak Russian when they were teaching at universities. Uh, Number one, is it true? And number two, could you explain if it is the impact of such measures on the protection and promotion of the Ukrainian language in recent years?
2: Uh, okay, that that's uh, actually a fascinating uh, question because, um, yeah, uh, the thing is that you know um, we've you know Ukrainians as a society we've you know compared uh, our history to you know for example the history of Ireland and you know the way that you know the Irish language uh was you know has been replaced essentially by English and I think a lot of you know uh a lot of politicians and lawmakers are worried that you know if we don't protect Ukrainian um then you know it'll be in danger of you know also disappearing because Russia has you know Uh, so much money that they can, you know, essentially flood our market with their books, their TV shows, their music, whatever, and, you know, instead of writing or teaching in Ukrainian, it'll be easier to teach or do whatever in Russian. So, uh, you know, our government did um, adopt a law uh, which aims to protect Ukrainian, uh, essentially According to this law, you can use whatever language you like um, in your daily life. Uh, but you know, certain um, officials, uh, for example, you know, government officials or university professors, if someone, if you know, Ukrainian-speaking uh, students ask them to speak or teach or lecture in uh, whatever in Ukrainian, then you know, that's what they're supposed to do um if you know the whole you know the whole group or the whole classroom is fine with you know um listening to a lecture in russian then if it's okay with everyone then they can you know go ahead and um teach in russian uh the reason why they did this is uh also because although you know I've said that a lot of you know I think pretty much every Russian speaking uh Ukrainian knows Ukrainian uh some Ukrainians are from the western regions mostly they don't really know um Russian that well they they might know you know Polish instead of Russian or Hungarian um but since those parts of the country were uh you know they were um they joined the Ukrainian uh, Soviet Republic later um Russian isn't as popular and isn't you know as as uh, mainstream uh, in those regions, so it makes sense, I guess, to you know, to have lectures in the language which everybody has been learning um, in school. Uh, so I think a lot of effort has been done to you know encourage professors in universities uh, to you know give lectures in Ukrainian. Um, the problem with that, and why you know certain professors. Uh, aren't you know too happy about that uh, is because a lot of the you know they a lot of them don't really know English that well especially the more old school professors uh, and they get all of their research from you know um, from Russian sources and they have old Soviet textbooks in Russian and they don't really want to make the effort of you know coming up with these you know um, this scientific vocabularies uh, in Ukrainian, or you know, doing research to because I'm sure you know these all of these it's terms, a hard switch, yeah, yeah, all, all of these terms exist, but they they you know don't really feel like you know, research, especially as I said, as they're if they're you know, all the people who you know who who uh, might have worked in Soviet universities. So, I think a lot of them don't really want to do that, um, but. Unless they do, then obviously, you know, the Ukrainian scientific community will be just, you know, just um, a lesser sort of uh, brother of, of the Russian scientific community. And, you know, nobody really wants that. So I think that, you know, in a country which has an official language, it is it is fine to have university professors speak that language and be required to know it Um, as long as you know is in their daily life um, nobody goes you know uh, trying to hunt down russian-speaking ukrainians because you know they're honestly uh, in some parts of the country they're the majority Um, so i know it it, it was controversial um, among certain certain Um, parts of our society but I think after the invasion uh, a lot of people, even people who you know, said why learn Ukrainian, Uh, it's not you know, I prefer speaking Russian Ukrainian, isn't that useful. Anyway I think even a lot of them have changed their minds, to be honest and they do want to sort of um, place some kind of uh, barrier between our society and the Russian one, So, so yeah.
0: We are going to need to wrap, but I want to uh, give Belarus uh, the last question. Uh, The floor is yours. Thanks, Benjamin, and and, uh, for for the space. And thank you very much, Alexandra, for your insight. Uh, My question, uh, the answer to which is not likely to be brief, but I'm just curious to know, as a Ukrainian, what do you see the future relationship
2: between Ukrainians and Russians Evolving into post-war.
0: Wow, that's a heck of a question to end on, um, uh, and it's an almost impossible one, as you uh, say, to answer briefly. But uh, Alexandra, your thoughts on it uh, before we wrap?
2: Okay. Um, well, I have to say that you know uh, a lot. I think, especially you know, from people um, who have who are living. Through this war, I think a lot of them uh, don't really want to, you know, have anything in common with Russia as soon as, you know, the war is over, even if um, they have families or friends or ex-friends uh, in Russia. I think a lot of them have been very disappointed by the way that um, these relatives just you know don't believe um, them uh, whenever they tell them what's happening in Ukraine. And a lot of people thought that you know if if Putin were to um, announce an invasion that you know maybe the relatives of ukrainians would, would sort of protest and try and keep this at bay uh, but they didn't um, and I think a lot of a lot of us are, are very hurt very angry uh, by that so obviously it has you know it is um, it has also influenced interpersonal relations and not just you know, uh, relations on a state level uh, I think you know, Personally, I don't really care. Um, it, I don't, you know. Um, despite everything, I don't wish, you know, for Russia to, I don't know, uh, go up in flames or or whatever. I, I don't really care what what you know what their trajectory will be um, after the war. Uh, but I do think that our late relations they do depend on, you know, if the Russian society manages to sort of um uh, at least partly sort of uh think about you know their past as an imperialist force um if they manage to address you know a lot of the issues in their own society because sadly, you know it's not a question of just you know a bad bloodthirsty president being in charge sadly it's a lot of this has to do with you know Russian chauvinism. Uh, which has been unaddressed for way too long. And, you know, um, the Soviet Union never answered uh, for its crimes against, uh, you know, its own people. And a lot of these very um, traumatic pages um, from, you know, Russia's history books, they haven't been addressed, they haven't been talked about. um, And unless Russian society as a whole sort of... um, you know, starts talking about, you know, how did Russia manage to get so big? Did they, you know, might have, they colonized someone? Um, You know, why, you know, why are people from Central Asia being, you know, discriminated against? Why are, you know, a lot of uh, Russian officials using still using you know the word Slavic as a sort of code word for white you know unless they address these sort of um racial uh, ethnic and you know other issues in their own society unless they you know they manage to um face all of these problems, then I think you know a lot of ukrainians the majority of Ukrainians definitely won't want to have anything to do with them. Um, because, you know, in order for Russia to, you know, to be a normal, I don't know, I I hate using the word normal, but still, I, I just can't come up with a better descriptor here, you know, unless they want to be a normal society, they have to deal with all the hurt and, you know, the, the death and destruction they have caused throughout their history. And, you know, for that to change, um, obviously we're going to see, you know, some real shifts in, in Russia, um and some serious conversations about you know the issues they have um if if they manage to go through that then you know that that's great and i'll be happy for them um if they don't then you know the only way for you know for for the world to avoid a an awful, you know, sort of situation like the one we're going through right now is for Russia to, you know, just not have enough resources to invade anyone ever again, because you know either they 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 realize why invading people is bad, or or they just shouldn't have the means to do it. Um, you know.
0: We are going to leave it there, Alexandra Pavlochnik. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, we will be back. As always, you can find the next scheduled episode of Live from Ukraine. Whenever one is scheduled, it is pinned to the top of my Twitter feed. I schedule them pretty impulsively when I persuade somebody to do one. So just keep an eye on the Twitter feed and and on Lawfare Twitter feed, and and, and you'll always know which ones are coming up. You can find all the back episodes in the podcast feed which you should subscribe to share and rate as per all the usual reasons and uh we will be back next time thank you so much live from ukraine is a production of lawfare and goat rodeo uh you know The engineering, I'm doing it myself because it's Twitter Spaces, but it is produced and edited by folks at Goat Rodeo. Thanks for listening.
1: Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts?